Good evening, everyone. Good to have you here. You uh, are continuing to bless us with your presence, and we don't take that lightly. So thank you for choosing to be with us this evening. Uh, What we're going to be addressing is the topic of the New Covenant, how to be a New Covenant Christian. Uh, Last night we talked about the blessing of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the work He's doing on our behalf, and tonight we're going to be addressing how to be a New Covenant Christian. So I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll start this evening's study. Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you for blessing us uh, with this opportunity to reflect upon your word, uh, for the power of your Holy Spirit to transform the life. And uh, Lord, we want to know how to be a new covenant Christian tonight, so speak to us. Teach us, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, So, the New Covenant introduced. Let's go to the first real clear mentioning of the New Covenant. And where do you think we would find the New Covenant? If you just had to take a random guess in the Old Testament or the New Testament, what do you think? New Testament. Testament. Okay. It's actually the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is the introduction of the New Covenant to the people of God, and it's actually found of all places in the Old Testament. In fact, most of our teaching today will come from the Old Testament on this topic. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So let's go then uh, to the defining of the old covenant. Okay, we're going to find this in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, uh, God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years in bondage. They've been delivered from that bondage. And as they're on their way out, just before they get to the, uh, in fact, just kind of this in the timeline when they're about to arrive at Mount Sinai, God is speaking to the people. Moses is giving, uh, he's given counsel from God to give to the people. Here's what God's looking for. Here's what he's asking. So here's where we go. Here we go. Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a beautiful illustration of deliverance. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together, and what do they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And then we go to Exodus chapter 24. Okay, just a few chapters later, God's given the Ten Commandments. He's given some other, you know, processes for sanitary laws and other laws, how they're going to build the sanctuary and all of that. Now in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3, it says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice, and what do they say again? Very similar, isn't it? All that the Lord has said, we will do. Then we get to verse 7. 
few verses later, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they say again, All right, so three times, once in Exodus 19, twice in Exodus 24, God gives the requirements, the things he's asking of his people, and three times they say, all that the Lord has said, we will do, we will do, we will do. I have a very simple question for you this evening. Did they? No, they made a total mess of things, right? Less than 40 days later, they're running laps around a golden calf in pagan revelry. Clearly something's wrong here then, isn't it? Right? Everything you've said, we will do, we will do, we will do, no problem, except for the fact that they didn't, which is a problem, right? This is why God says in Jeremiah 31 that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. You see why God would be frustrated here? You know, you said you would, you said you would, you said you would, you didn't. So something's got to change here. We need to make a new covenant, okay? That's the context. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, tells us what the terms of this covenant was to be. Beginning at verse 11, Deuteronomy 4, verse 11. Then you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. And this is probably pretty helpful because knowing the history of the nation of Israel, if they did see a form, they probably would have made an idol. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it's true, right? So you didn't see a form, you only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. And what was that covenant according to Deuteronomy? The Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Okay, This is why, by the way, the article of furniture, we talked about this in our third night together when we kind of address the idea of the sanctuary in the most holy place of the sanctuary on the other side of that veil there's a very special piece of furniture does anybody know what that was called the ark of the covenant what was inside of the ark of the covenant does anybody know the ten commandments so when they call it the ark of the covenant and what's inside of it is the ten commandments and deuteronomy saying the ten commandments were the terms of the covenant we're all saying the same thing Right? What God intended was for the law to take part in the people's lives. And they said, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. And less than 40 days later, they're violating that very law by worshiping a golden calf and saying that this is the God that delivered you from Egypt. That's a problem. They had broken covenant with God. By the way, that's why Moses comes down from the mountain with the tab. How many people have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston, that big gnarly beard? Right? He comes down from the mountain and he's got these big stone tablets in his hands. And what does he do with them when the people are dancing around the thing in pagan revelry. He throws them down and smashes them, not because Moses has a hot temper, but because the people had broken covenant with God. They had broken covenant. So he broke the tablets signifying what they had done, right, by completely running in the opposite direction of the law. Okay? So, Go back to Jeremiah 31. We'll reread those first two verses and we'll add more to it now. We've seen the historical background, why God is struggling with the nation of Israel, why he needs to make a new covenant. We saw what happened. The people said, we got you. 
but they didn't get you, okay? Jeremiah 31, now verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. I was the love of their lives. This wasn't an issue of God's faithfulness. It was their unfaithfulness. You see the difference here and what's going on? Beginning of verse 33. Now we're skipping to verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. If you remember last night, we quoted Hebrews chapter 2 or Hebrews chapter 10, which is actually directly quoting Jeremiah 31. We read this last night, right? The idea of writing the law in our hearts and in our minds. And he says, I will write my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So the law is no longer going to appear as something that's outwardly imposed. It's going to be something that's inwardly inscribed but it's still a part of the human experience. Do you see that? In the new covenant explanation, God is going to write his law in their hearts and their minds. So he's not doing away with the law. He's actually making it more a part of your life than before. So the law doesn't go away. The covenant doesn't end. What changes is the onus of who's going to make sure that the people keep it. Because in the old covenant, they said, all that you have said, we will do. In the new covenant, God says, I will write my law in your heart and in your minds. I will give you my spirit and empower you to keep it. And we'll see more of that as we go on. We, we alluded to a lot of that last night. Also, we can assume that when we don't keep the law, that we're cast off and we can't be God's people anymore. Anyone ever wrestle with those thoughts? I mess up and you think, man, I don't know if he wants me anymore. But he says that I will be their God and they will be my people and I will forgive their iniquity and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So part of the new covenant given to lawbreakers is that they will be brought into God's favor through God's pursuit of them. Amen? Amen? Not of us having to get everything right to come towards God. God initially, he initiates this relationship. He pursues us, though we have gone astray, and he promises to do the work of transforming us as well. Now, this kind of sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Could God really forgive me? And the reason why we have those thoughts is because Revelation 12 refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that tells you, you're not good enough. God can't forgive you. Can you believe what you just did? There's no way God would, would, would forgive you for that or overlook that, right? So that directly comes from Satan. Those thoughts don't come from Jesus. So if God has no intention of remembering our sins, then why do we insist on reminding ourselves? You ever thought about that? If God's not beating us over the head with our mistakes, why are we beating ourselves over the head with our mistakes? That's not what God would have for us to do, right? God wants us to focus on what He can do, not what we haven't done, right? We do our part. We confess. We forsake. But we need to focus our energy on what God has done, not on who I'm not, right? That's where our energy needs to be. Now, the author of Hebrews picks up on this very idea of what was going wrong with the Old Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Listen to this, speaking of Jesus. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as that he's also mediator of what type of a covenant? 
a better covenant, which was established on what type of promises? Better promises. Here's the point, beloved. No longer is the covenant based upon man's faulty promises to God. It's now based upon God's faithful promises to man. Amen? This is what are the terms of the new covenant. God promising to do for man, not man trying to promise something to God. And it's done through the hands of a mediator through Jesus. That's the promise that's made to us as humanity. Go continuing to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. We had the saying where I grew up that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? If there's nothing wrong, we're not going to change things. Clearly something was wrong, but it wasn't the law that was the issue. It was the self-righteousness of the people and the self-sufficiency of the people. All the Lord has said, we will do, we will do, we will do. In the new covenant, God says, I still want the law to be part of your life because this is what leads to love, joy, peace, happiness, gentleness, and, good, and all of those things of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. God wants all that to be part of your life because He wants you to be happy. How many people in this room feel shame when they do terrible things in their lives? Anybody else ever felt that? Yeah, God doesn't want you to feel that. And the way that you don't feel that is by letting Him transform your life. So the law isn't the problem. The law is the standard. God will enable you to keep the standard. The problem is if you're thinking that you and your flesh are going to do everything that humanity can't do, it's going to be a miserable experience, for one. And two, you're not going to succeed. Some of us today are living an old covenant experience, and maybe even some of us are believing that the law is important while living an old covenant experience. And there's dissonance there. I believe in the validity of the law, but I'm a miserable Christian. And it's because I'm trying to do for me what only God can do for me. Are you understanding? That's an old covenant experience, even if you're cherishing the law. God doesn't want that for us. Then continuing in Hebrews 8 here, they quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. We've already read that, so I'm going to skip that part. So go to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. It says, in that he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete, and what's, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Beloved, our old covenant experience has to go away. It's miserable. It doesn't bear fruit. It, it puts us in the place of God. It's not healthy. It isn't good. God doesn't want that for you. That is not the experience that God wants. That, that old mindset has to be made obsolete. It needs to vanish away. So it's not the content of the covenant that's at fault then. It's the self-confidence and self-righteousness of the people who made the agreement. Are you with me so far? Okay. This is what we're seeing from Scripture. Okay. We're only looking at what Scripture has to say about this. Now, it's very interesting because when the nation of Israel, even though they messed up at Mount Sinai and made the wrong type of agreement, we'll come back to the reasons on that in a moment. But even though that happens, they still haven't learned the lesson after wandering 40 years in the wilderness. Go to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. In the book of Joshua... Joshua is kind of giving a last exhortation to the people, and he talks about, he kind of presents the goodness of the Lord before the people, and then he says, um, if, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You ever see those little placards in people's houses or little cross stitches or whatever? You know, if you want to serve God, serve God. If not, whatever. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Well, here's what he says right after that. And so in verse 16, the people say, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went among all the people through whom we passed. 
And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And you think, oh, they get it now. And then Joshua gives the most awful pastoral appeal and exhortation maybe you have ever seen, seemingly. He says, you can't serve the Lord, for he's a holy God and a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a church service and the pastor said, give your life to Jesus, you better believe I'm giving my life to Jesus. And then he says, you can't give your life to Jesus, and he's not going to forgive your sins. Would you want that guy to be your pastor anymore? No. There's more going on here than maybe we realize in the, in the, in the, the cursory reading of this text. Listen to this. This is from a commentary on this particular section of Scripture. I love this. They say, This reaction of Joshua to Israel's pledge of commitment echoes Israel's similar pledge at Mount Sinai many years earlier. Exodus 19 and Exodus 24 and Exodus 24. All that you said, we will do, we will do, we will do. We read those earlier. So they're saying that this is a similar pledge these people are making right here to what happened there. The people needed to realize that it was not enough to make a brave declaration and pledge of allegiance. They also needed to recognize their inability in themselves to obey God and that they could not be forgiven while they were depending upon their own strength and righteousness. Do you see the real issue here? They could not be forgiven while relying on themselves and their own strength. They needed to trust wholly in the merits of the promised Savior represented by the sacrifice who would forgive their sins and give them power to obey. This is what is referred to as righteousness by faith. This isn't works. This isn't me trying to do things to convince God to like me or to save me. It's because God already loves me that he wants to transform my life and make me like him. All right, we talked about that last night. We're just adding more to it this evening. So that's what Josh was saying here. And this kind of reminds me of... This, uh, this quote that I've heard regarding this idea of righteousness by faith or justification by faith. It says, what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? God. The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their own nothingness, it's then that they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Clearly, the nation of Israel did not see their nothingness, else they wouldn't have been saying all that the Lord has said, we will do, we will do, we will do. What they should have said is, God, we cannot do that. But if you're asking for that to be a reality in my life, I'm trusting that you will give me power and strength, and I'm giving you permission. Do you see the difference? We are giving God permission to transform our lives, not us seeking to clean ourselves up. Only God can do that. This is not a matter of works. Just because we're, we're talking about the validity of the law, we are not saying that you need to be a bunch of little legalists who are doing everything you can to convince God that you're good enough and maybe I'll be a good boy and maybe I'll be saved. That is not what we are saying here this evening. It is not creature merit. It is the righteousness of Jesus, the righteous life of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit makes a reality in your life. Do you see the difference? That's what we're talking about tonight. Now, there's some background for this in Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abraham. I'm going to summarize this for time's sake, and I'll do my best to, to be brief because we start a little bit later. But in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, God comes up to him and says, Abraham, I'm your exceedingly great reward. I'm what you've been looking for. And you would think that Abraham's going to say, amen, Jesus, you're what I'm looking for. But he stumbles here. 
You ever stumbled in your faith experience? Well, Father Abraham too. And he says, no, you're not. You've promised me kids and I don't have kids. My wife is still barren. And God says that my promise to you has not changed. He says, let's go for a walk, Abraham. Look at those stars. If you could number them, you will have that many descendants. My promise is still true. You're still going to have a seed who will bless the world, which is speaking of Jesus. You're still going to have a seed that will bless the world. My promise to you is still true. And then the Bible says in Genesis 15 that he believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham trusted the coming Messiah, Jesus, to be his source of righteousness. Abraham understood that. And then God does something to make it clear to Abraham what's going on. There was a thing they did in their culture back in the day, in Eastern cultures, that if someone was making a covenant with somebody, at times what they would do is they would sever animals and they would separate them in half. And both parties would walk in between these severed animals, basically making a pledge that so let what was done to these animals be done to me if I don't keep covenant with you. This is what happens in Genesis 15. I would recommend that you read this later. Genesis chapter 15, if you want to take a note on this. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham separates the animals. And then as he separates the animals, God comes and speaks to him and says that your descendants are going to be foreigners and slaves in a foreign land. And they're going to be there for 400 years. And at the end of those 400 years, they're going to plunder their captors. And he tells them even why they have to be there for 400 years. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There's still a chance for these pagans in the Canaan land and the promised land to turn and give their lives to God before they've gotten so hardened that nothing could change their course. And so God, in his mercy and in his long suffering, is giving the Amorites time to change heart. And in the meantime, your people will be in captivity. But after that, you will go and you will take the land after those 400 years and they'll plunder their captors. I believe the reason why God did this in Genesis chapter 15 is so that when the nation of Israel is actually delivered from Egypt, they would be reminded, hey, wait a minute, God promised that after 400 years we would be released. And what else was going on in Genesis chapter 15 when God made that promise? Us choosing Christ as our source of righteousness and not we ourselves. God had literally set the nation of Israel up to succeed in making the right kind of a covenant at Mount Sinai. But they spent 400 years in an appeasement, pagan-based religion. I have to do deeds to get God to favor me and God to like me. So when they hear this God telling them, here are the things that I expect of you, their default answer, instead of looking back at their own family history of Abraham, and being reminded that God said we would be released, and here we are being released, what else did he have to say? They missed it. Now, not everyone did. We'll see that in a moment. Two people did get it, but a majority of the people didn't, so they made their own covenant. We'll do it. This is not what God intended. Why would, so that, that leads to a question. The very covenant that God wanted to make with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai with the law of God was the same covenant that he made with Abraham that Jesus will be their source of righteousness and their power source. So the question then is, why is it that God allowed the nation of Israel to make a faulty covenant? For some of us, how many people in this room are parents? Okay. How many parents have run into a situation where you have tried to reason with your children to no avail? Anyone ever run into that? Yeah, pretty much all of you. And how many of you have had to finally come to the point where you said, okay, 
and you let them make the decision and then they reap the consequences and then they finally get it. How many parents have had that experience? That's what happens at Mount Sinai. God is not signing off on this situation saying, oh yeah, that's the way you keep covenant with me. He realized they're not getting it. They're not li- I set them up to succeed. They didn't listen. I'm going to have to let them crash and burn to finally see their need of a Savior. Are you with me tonight? Are you understanding? God had to allow them to crash and burn to recognize I don't have any righteousness on my own. I can't even make it 40 days without Jesus before worshiping a golden calf even though the God of Israel sacked Egypt and delivered me and worked miracles on my behalf. God is reasonable and God is apparent, and he understands that sometimes you have to let them do what they're going to do. And so that's why he's saying, this isn't the covenant I want to make with you. When I'm making a new covenant with my people, it's not what you saw at Sinai. I never wanted that. What I wanted at Sinai is what you see in Genesis 15. But I had to let them go through this journey to finally recognize it's not about me. I don't have what it takes. I need Jesus. That's the purpose. And the whole reason why they call them Old and New Covenant is basically this. With a covenant, there has to be the shedding of blood to ratify a covenant, right, in a biblical worldview. The blood that was shed at Mount Sinai, or the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, was immediately accompanied with the shedding of blood. They shed blood that day. They put blood on the scroll. They sprinkled blood on the people. Everything was covered that day. That's why it's called the Old Covenant. It's just a chronological term. That was the Old Covenant. The new covenant blood was not shed until the death of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant with man. And so even though the covenant he wanted to make with Abraham, that he did make with Abraham was what he wanted to make at Sinai, that blood isn't shed until many, many, many hundreds of years later. So if you, if you get kind of confused by the chronology, that's just the point of why the terms old and new are used. That blood was shed first at Sinai, but the real covenant God wanted is called the new. God's not discarding the reasons of the covenant. He's not discarding the content of the covenant. What he is discarding is the self-righteousness and the self-sufficiency of the people who made that covenant. That's the main point. Are you with me tonight? That's the point. It's not about you and what you do. It's about you trusting in what Jesus can and has already done through you. Amen? That's the point of the covenants. Okay? It's kind of nerdy in Genesis 15, but the main point is it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus can do in, through, and for you. That's why it's old and new. Okay? So the real issue here then is the self-sufficiency of the people. Now, Joshua and Caleb understood this whole Genesis 15 connection. They understood that. In Numbers chapter 13 and verse 30, they're told to go spy out the land. They do. It's an amazing land. They come back, and there's 10 spies that are super discouraged because there's giants in the land. And there's two guys that say, absolutely not. Don't be discouraged. Let's go. And the people listen to the 10, not the two. That's the unfortunate thing. So in verse 30 of Numbers 13, Caleb quieted the people because they're discouraged. They start crying because of what they heard from the 10, you know, uh, discouraged spies. And they say, let us go at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. This is what Caleb says in verse 6. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied at the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. And then what does he say next? Their protection has departed from them. There's only one way he could know something like that. 
and it's Genesis chapter 15. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God's placed a, a form of protection over them. You can't go take the land and conquer them yet. Give them a chance to respond. And so the whole reason why they're saying this is they understand those 400 years have, have lapsed. They've passed. Now is our time to take the land. Their protection has left them. And the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. And unfortunately, they don't respond. But Joshua and Caleb knew their history. They were paying attention, and they would have made the proper covenant at Mount Sinai. But the majority spoke, and that's why you have what you have. You understanding? So God didn't arbitrarily make the right covenant with Abraham and then arbitrarily make a wrong covenant, realize, oops, my bad. Well, let's make a third covenant. Then He only wanted to make one type of covenant. You trust me to be your source of righteousness. You trust me to be your power source. The nation of Israel didn't get it, and that's the only reason for this interlude between Old and New Covenant. Are you with me? That's the main point. Now, there's another explanation of the New Covenant that's also found in the Old Testament. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, what I'm about to do, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you've profaned among the nations wherever you went. God's got a problem here. The very people that he employed to reach the world and to tell them how awesome Jesus is have made the surrounding nations hate God. Now, how many people have ever hired a contractor for something? You ever hired a contractor? Or maybe who's just doing some form of service for you, someone to, to fix your car or whatever. If you brought your car to the shop and you asked them to fix your car and instead they burn the thing to the ground, would you be upset? Yeah, that wasn't what I hired you for. The very thing I hired you to do, you did the exact opposite. My car's not better off by coming here, it's worse off. This is the, the struggle that God has. The very nation he employed to be evangelists, to win the world for the kingdom, are now rejecting God because of their example. This is another example, by the way, of God having a beef with bad religion. Do you see that? This is God saying, I do not endorse people who are claiming to know me, but poorly represent me. This is God distancing himself from that. And he says it twice in Ezekiel 36, that he's got an issue here. Okay? And it reminds me of Romans chapter 2 and verse 24, where the Apostle Paul, speaking to one of his congregations, says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Can you imagine getting a letter from your pastor saying the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? I believe Paul was actually quoting this section of Ezekiel chapter 36. So God's got an issue with this. He's got, a, he's, got, he's got a missional quandary. The very people who are supposed to reach the world are not reaching the world. So what do we do about that? He says, here's what needs to happen. Okay. By the way, is this, is this the type of thing that's driving people away from churches today? Do you think this is one of the reasons why many people in Schuylkill County are not attending church today? If you look at the demographics, it's, it's, it's disappointingly fascinating. People who claim to have some form of religious beliefs, but don't attend churches. And you ought to ask the question, I wonder why that is. I think this is a big reason of that. Seeing bad examples, people who claim to know God and then hurt me. People who are supposed to be pointing me to Jesus and now scandals erupt. Other things happen and we just think, I don't, I'm not okay with that. 
right? There may be good reasons why people are off put by what they see in religion, but that doesn't mean that that's God's fault. Do you see the difference? That doesn't mean that God's signing off on that. We're talking about a God who is worth knowing, not a God who we should avoid, right? That's why we're uplifting Jesus every single night so we can recognize, hey, regardless of what's happened with people, would you at least give Jesus another chance? Are you with me? That's why what we're doing every single night for that very reason. So how's he going to fix it? Well, he says in verse 23, the nation shall know that I'm a Lord, I'm the Lord around you, when I'm hallowed in you before their eyes. How's he going to fix the problem? The surrounding nations are going to have to see a people who look like Jesus. That's what's needed. When I'm hallowed in you before their eyes, the unbelieving world will know that God is Lord alone when his people look like Jesus. This is what the world has been looking for all along. And this is what God has wanted all along. But the Israelites were selfish, narcissistic, judgmental, and nationalistic. They felt entitled to the favor of God because they were his chosen people. But what they didn't realize was that this type of mentality and behavior kept other people from knowing that they were God's chosen people too. They weren't better than everybody else. They were just the spokespersons to let everybody else know, you should join this party too. God also loves you. He doesn't just love me. He doesn't just favor me. God also loves you and is inviting you to follow him as well. Amen? God is so missional, guys. He's so outward focused, so winsome. But because they rejected that, he eventually moved on to the Christian church. Right? He had to move on because how is the Jewish nation going to tell the world the Messiah has come when they're the very ones who crucified the Messiah? It's just, a, it's just a pragmatic solution. God raised up a Christian church. He raised up people who would tell that story because God's desire is the same desire it was in Ezekiel 36. I want the world to know me. I want the world to know that I love them, that I desire to have fellowship with them, that I want to dwell among them once again. That's the whole purpose here. So how's he going to make his people look like Jesus? Go to verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, all those things that you're running to, to escape God, to escape accountability, the addictions and, and, and brain-killing and, and numbing devices that we're running to. God says, I can, I can cleanse you from that. I can set you free from that, whatever you're running to, all those idols in your experience. He says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you the ability to be able to feel again, to have some form of sympathy for your fellow man, to have some form of desire for the things of God. I can handle that. I can change you. Some of us may feel cold and hard-hearted. And we just think, God, I don't know if you could really raise me from the dead. Like, I've been so hurt. I've been so rejected. I've been so bitter. I don't think that's possible. God says, it's absolutely possible. I can remove that hard heart, and I can give you the ability to feel and to trust and to love once more. I will put my spear within you, verse 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is what we talked about last night. This is God empowering his people to walk in obedience to the things that he commands. The law of God and his will for our lives. He says, I'll send my Holy Spirit to enable you to do that. So God here is replacing the we wills of the people with his own I wills. Do you see that? Three times, all the Lord has said, we will do. 
All the Lord has said, we will do. All the Lord has said, we will do. Ten times, I've bolded them. There's six of them here, and I think there's four in the next slide. Ten times, God says, enough of that foolishness. I'm going to do it. Get off the throne, get out of the driver's seat, and let me do in your life what you are not able to do on your own. I will, I will, I will. He continues. Uh, So the law is not the problem that needed to be changed, guys. That's not the issue of the covenants. It has nothing to do with the law going away. It's more a part of your life after becoming a new covenant Christian than it was as an old covenant Christian. That's what the Bible says. That's what we have seen. I'm going to write it on on your heart and in your mind. That is not making it go away. But the power source isn't you, and you aren't doing this to get God to love you or to like you or some form of penance. Like This is literally the way in which God transforms the life because the law of God is just a transcript of His character. That's just telling you how heaven does life. It's not ten you-betters or else's. That's not what the Ten Commandments are. It's a reflection of how God does life. It's other-centered love. The first four commandments on the, in the Ten Commandments all have to do with our vertical relationship with God. The last six commandments have to deal with our horizontal relationship with our fellow man. And many of those horizontal relationship laws, by the way, are the same laws that most of our nations have today. Many of them are, right? Stealing, killing, right? Robbing people of stuff. Like it, all of this stuff is not what God wanted for you to have in your life, right? It, it's basically saying, stop living so selfishly that you're invading somebody else's life. Give them the space and the dignity to live the life that I call them to live. So protect their safety, protect their marriages, protect their homes, protect their families. Are you understanding? Right? That, that's all that's being said here with the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments are how to know and commune with God in a way that is substantive and helpful. The entire fulfillment of the law, Romans tells us, is love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. This isn't legalism. This isn't bondage. Being a new covenant Christian is living in the freedom that Jesus affords. Amen? Amen. A life that's free from shame, that's free from condemnation, that's free of violating the people around you of their liberties and rights. That's what a new covenant Christian looks like. And that's what the Bible is saying here. So he continues. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. You know, sometimes we wonder, like, I just, I don't know if I could be God's people because my life is a mess. I'm not who I wish I would be. Guys, he's making this covenant with covenant breakers. Don't lose sight of that. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, God is reintroducing to a covenant-breaking people, I still want you in my life. I still want to set you free. I still want to transform your life. Give me your heart and watch what I can do. That's what God's saying here, beloved. He's making this covenant to disobedient, ugly people. Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. And this reminds me of Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, that the goodness of God leads to repentance. God's showing favor and grace and love to a people who have not produced is what leads them to fall on the rock and to repent and realize, if you're going to be that good to me, Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry, take my life. 
Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Right? Take all of me. But some of us can wrestle with this. God would do that for me? Yeah, but I'm dirty. I have idols. I have a stony heart. I don't obey. Beloved, here's the point. God's love for you is not based upon what you do. It's based upon who he is. Amen? He's the one that empowers you to both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's the power source. Don't get mixed up in this. Just because we're talking about the fact that the law is precious and holy, righteous, just, and good does not mean that we're telling you, you better do these things and then maybe God will like you. It's because God already loves you that he sent Jesus while you were sinning. And it's because he already loves you that he sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to empower us to walk in an obedient life that's free from shame, free from self-hatred and so forth, and free from violating the people around us. Do you understand the difference? Right? Nothing here is, is, is anywhere close to what people refer to as legalism. But some here may be getting a little bit antsy. Well, what do I do? Beloved, the I wills of God are dependent upon your I will. I will cease trying to appease God by my deeds. I will stop avoiding the conviction of His Holy Spirit. I will choose to believe the things about me that God believes, and I'm going to yield my will. I will yield my will, my power of choice, and my desires to the one who's given all for me and desires my happiness. Those I wills of God are dependent upon your I will. Will you give God your heart? Will you give Him your desires to refine and transform? God is asking us to lay down our old covenant experience of we wills and to rest in his I will. That's what he's asking of us tonight. Yielding our will and choosing to receive Jesus' spirit of surrender is difficult. That's true. But it's the only thing that's going to lead to happiness and victory. The only way you're going to find it. We have to come to terms with the fact that we have nothing to offer God but ourselves. And one of the things I love about Jesus is that my piety does not impress him and my dirt does not discourage him. Amen? Amen. He's not impressed by my good deeds and he's not repulsed by my lack of good deeds. He has a steadfast, faithful love for us. Now that love does not want us to suffer and that love does not want us to continue living a lifestyle of sin and self-destruction and self-sabotage. Of course. Do you as parents want to see your kids continue ruining their lives? No, you're going to need order. You're going to need structure. You're going to need things that lead to your betterment. That's the whole point of the law. It's a law of life, the Bible says, and the whole thing is summed up in one word, love. It's because God gave us the law, or because He loves us, that He gave us the law, and it's because we love Him that we keep the law by His strength and His grace alone. The whole thing is about love, always has been and always will be. So God's love for us is at the zenith no matter what we do. Our actions don't change that for the worse or for the better. Here's another commentary on Ezekiel 36. It says this, God will move his followers to obedience through the power of the Spirit. This is a unique declaration about obedience as a result of God's working in humans through the Holy Spirit. Thus, obedience is not our achievement or performance, but a, it's a consequence of letting God work in us. Alone, we're not able to follow him. Power to overcome evil and live in harmony with his commandments comes from a source outside of us. Abraham understood that. New Covenant Christians understand that. The nation of Israel did not. Only the Spirit of God can transform hearts and enable people to observe his laws and instructions. And I love this last line. 
What God requires, He also provides. Amen? All of His biddings are enablings. Everything that God asks of you, He will enable you to do, but He can't cross the threshold of your will, beloved. He needs your permission to do this work in your life. He would delight in transforming your life. He would love to do that, but He needs your permission. Right? God can't, you know, bust down the door, throw a bag over your head, throw you in an unmarked van, and take you to heaven. He can't do that. He needs your will. He needs your desire. He needs your willingness to participate. Going back to Romans chapter 8, we talked about this last night. For what the law could not do, save us, and that it was weak through the flesh, because my flesh can't keep the law, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in flesh like ours, and on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Right? So it's not us, it's Christ in us. And that's the beautiful gift that we're given. When we're walking according to the Spirit, God makes that a reality. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel 36. I want to finish out the chapter here and listen to what he says. It's beautiful language that God is using here. Thus says the Lord God, this is Ezekiel 36 in verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. You know, some of us, our lives feel like ruins. Anybody, can you relate to that? Like, I've made a mess of things. It looks like somebody just carpet bombed my life. And all there is is dust, destruction, and discouragement. God says, I can rebuild those ruins. I can do it. The desolate land should be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Beloved, here's the beautiful thing. When you have a new covenant experience with Jesus Christ and He transforms your life by the grace of God, people notice. People recognize there's something different about you. This thing that used to be a wasteland now looks like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Verse 36, Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. They're going to recognize no man could have done in your life. What just happened? Only God could do that. Only God could raise someone from death. Only God could raise somebody from spiritual death and from discouragement and disaster. And people will take note. And then he says, I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I'm so glad that that's in Scripture, beloved. You can ask God to do this for you today. Maybe your life is ruins. Maybe your life is a disaster right now. He says, you can ask me. You can ask me to do this for you tonight. I will increase their men like flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they shall know that I'm the Lord. This is the coming revival that I believe is going to happen on this earth. In the midst of the darkest, most wicked and evil scenes of earth's history that we're living in. And it's only getting worse as day goes by. I, I, my heart hurts every time I've driven here last night and home last night and here again this evening on Highway 61 where a man was killed in a road rage incident. He's dead, a 38-year-old man, I believe, with a wife and three children 
who are never going to see their father again because of a road rage incident. Beloved, we are living in a disaster-filled, selfish, evil world. And it's okay to acknowledge that. This place is not my home. I'm not okay with what's going on. You can say that. You can acknowledge that. And that sense of discomfort is meant to let you know there's a reason why you feel that way. You weren't made for the world you live in right now. You were made for the world that's to come. Amen? I could give you a presentation that tells you all the things the Bible says about how bad the world is going to get. But beloved, you're intelligent people. I'm not going to waste your time. The world is falling apart at the seams. It is, it is a different place than where you grew up. Am I right in that? It's a different place. And God is saying, yes, it's different. And some of the overflow of the disasters happening in the world are the disasters in your personal life. The stress and difficulty of COVID has made home a less safe place for some of you. It's made it maybe less secure financially for some of you. Maybe for some of you, it's very difficult to even leave your home right now. And the fact that you're here is a blessing, and we really appreciate your trust. We don't take that lightly, beloved. The very fact that you're here means the world to me, and it means even more to Jesus. And I trust he will bless you and honor you and honor that decision that you've made. I believe that. But the point is, yes, the world's falling apart, but the world is going to have one last resurgence of the gospel. I'm fully convinced of that. And it's going to be a people who have a new covenant experience. People who are radically surrendered to Jesus. People who recognize that this is what life was really meant to be, and I want that. You ever met those people that have a peace that passes understanding, and you just wonder, what is that guy smoking? What's in his water? Sign me up. Right? They're not smoking, most likely. But the point is, what's different about this guy? It's because they found what only Jesus can give, beloved. And they realized that my life was in ruins, but he rebuilt it. He rebuilt the whole thing. God can do that for you, beloved. And so as you close out in Ezekiel chapter 36, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Like, how could God possibly do that? Like, my life is a mess, bro. You don't even know. Like, I am doing my best to show you that I'm somewhat of like a put-together human being. But if you knew what was going on on the inside, you would realize it is not okay. And could God really do that for me? God understood that. And the very next words in Scripture, when we would be prone to doubt that God could actually do what He just said, listen to this. He anticipates that response in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 1. Look at the very next thing that God says. It says, And the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I love what Jesus is about to do here. I love this. How many people here work in the medical field or have worked in the medical field? I know there's at least one fellow over here. Good to see you, Doc. So in this situation... When bones have dried, is there any hope of life for them at that stage? No. All hope for life is lost. And God's using a very important analogy here. It's not just that the bones happen to be dry. It says that they are very dry. They're beyond hopeless at this stage. So he says, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. 
And again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and then you will know that I'm the Lord. I'm going to raise you from your dead state and that's how you're going to know that I'm exactly who I've claimed to be all along. Maybe you've doubted. Maybe you've wondered. I'm about to prove it to you. Let me change your life, and there will be no doubt in your heart and in your mind. And it's not just I'm going to remove your doubt. The people around you who see what I do are also going to recognize only God could do something like that. He continues, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. And indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. This is what false revivals look like. A whole lot of noise, but there's no power from God. But he doesn't stop there. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And I believe that's that revival that's soon to come upon this earth. In the closing chapters of earth's history, it's going to look like this. Now, is it going to be like literal dead bones come together in an open field? No, 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 no. But people who were as good as dead, coming alive through the power of the gospel, it's going to be a living testimony to this world before those chapters close. I'm fully convinced of that. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Some of you may be saying, this is just an allegory. Like, what do you even, like you're reading something in here that's not there, D. He says, these bones are the house of Israel. These are people, the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry and our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off. You ever felt that way? There's no hope for me. All hope is lost and gone. And he says this, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves of my people and brought you up from your graves. You're going to know I'm the Lord when I raise you from the dead. I'm going to do it. I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Amen? Amen. God absolutely can raise you from the dead. Your case is not hopeless. We serve a God who's in the business of raising dead bodies. I don't care what your life looks like right now. There's a God in heaven who is bigger than that. And he's asking you to take him at his word. The appeal to you this evening, beloved, is I I want you to listen to what God said in Ezekiel 36. I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. The only thing that's keeping us from experiencing that resurrection power of Jesus to transform our lives is to be willing to ask and to be willing to go all in. No holding back. If Jesus is calling, and if he can raise me from the dead, he can raise those dry bones, he can raise me from the dead, and he can handle whatever the consequences of that decision are going to be. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Jesus can handle that. He can absolutely handle that, but you got to let him. There's a God in heaven who is faithful to his people. 
Let me write my law on your heart and in your mind, and let me do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If that's you this evening, if you want to respond and say, Yes, Lord, I choose to rest in the power of God to transform my life, and I want to have a new covenant experience. I want to be a new covenant Christian. I want you to change my life, to transform it through the power of your word. I want the law to be a reality in my life. Whatever you're asking of me, I'm willing to do just, just, God, do what you've promised. If that's you tonight, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. I want to be a new covenant Christian. I want you to write that law in my heart and in my mind and to do in, through, and for me what I cannot do for myself. Beloved, God sees those hands. And I believe in this very moment, he's telling us, prophesy to the breath. Pray and request that powerful fire from heaven to do in, through, and for you what you can't do for yourself. You think he'll do it? You better believe it. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for loving us, for seeing something of value in us, even though, Lord, we do not see much in ourselves. And God, if you truly are able to raise people from the dead, Lord, we need that tonight. As it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, we pray that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus would make us free from the law of sin and death. And we're told in the Gospel of John that whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. We want that. Lord Jesus, I'm praying and I'm prophesying to that mighty wind from heaven. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit would descend upon this place and fill everyone who is present. And that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We admit that we have nothing. No more are we going to live our lives saying that all that you said we will do. God, we're now going to respond by saying, by your grace, you have my permission to do in my life what I cannot do for myself. Lord, clothe us with the righteousness of Jesus and save us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.